we're in a series through the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. And there's three themes we introduced last week. We're calling this series Redemption because there's three themes to redemption where Jesus purchases our freedom. And there's deliverance, which we've mentioned, where he frees us from our sin. And in in the story of the Exodus, you see God's people being freed from an oppressor and Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Also in Jesus and redemption, we see, so we see the theme of deliverance. We also see the theme of ransom where there's a penalty and a price paid for our freedom. Jesus endured the wrath on the cross that you and I deserve to endure. And in the same way, there was a price paid even with the firstborn and other plagues as, as God ransomed his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And finally, one of the themes that you don't always uh, think about as much, but is this theme of renewal. In that in, in God rescuing his people from Egypt, he's renewing his covenant with Abraham. He's remembering it because he's gonna take them into the land that he promised to give them as he brings them out of Egypt. And in the same way, Jesus promises to renew us, to make us new, to, to, to renew all of his creation. In fact, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, if you've trusted Christ, you are a new creation. And he makes us new. So uh, deliverance, ransom, and renewal, they're all parts or themes or lenses of redemption. And the Exodus, the book of the Exodus is in many ways, uh, really is an extended, the rest of the Bible is an extended interpretation of this book because all of it points forward to Jesus. So with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna dive in right away in Exodus chapter one. And uh, we're gonna move forward here in our series together. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your work rescuing your people, Jesus, both on the cross and also as we get to read about back in the Old Testament from Egypt, as that really foreshadowed and pointed forward Jesus to everything that you would do for us. So I pray even as we begin now to unpack the text and to look at these things, Holy Spirit, would you work in a way, in such a way that, that our hearts um, sense your work, sense your redemption of us. And even for those, maybe Jesus, who haven't trusted you, your call upon their life to trust you. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and their effects. Jesus, he uh, is the same enemy we read about here who, who keeps people in bondage, who holds them under affliction. Instead, would you free us completely? Teach us from your word today. Make us new in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna see God's people living under affliction. But prior to that, if you open up to the book of Exodus, you see that uh, there's kind of an introductory part of Exodus. And you know, if you could see this in Hebrew, the first word in Hebrew, do you know what it is? It's and, because it's a continuation of everything that happened in Genesis. It's the conjunct, Hebrew conjunction for the word and. So in other words, that's, that's, that's how I'm gonna read that. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. We're in Egypt, friends. That's where the Exodus takes place. That's where the story starts uh, or picks up, I should say, is in Egypt. And they're, they're in Egypt. They came with Jacob, Israel did, each with his own household, Reuben, it lists Jacob's sons here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, 
Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, how in the world did they end up from Israel in Egypt? We covered this briefly last week, but I think it's worth repeating just so we have an understanding of what's going on here. And by the way, at this time, it says in verse, the end of that passage, in verse five, that all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. In other words, there were 70 people in the beginning of the time where God's people were in Egypt. There were 70 of them in total. But how did they get there? Well, we got to back up to Genesis. And, and we talked about it last week with God calling Abraham. In Genesis 12, when he was 75 years old, he called him to leave everything he knew and to follow him. And with that call, he gave him three promises. Do you remember those? He said, Abraham, I'm gonna make your name great and I'm gonna bless you and make, bless other people through you. Make your name great. I'm gonna make you into a, a great nation. I'm gonna make you, give you many, many descendants. Abraham, by the way, when he received this promise was 75 and had no kids but I'm gonna give you a lot of descendants, Abraham. And then he's going to uh, give him a great land. Great name, great nation, great land. And what we're seeing here in Exodus is God continuing to fulfill these promises to Abraham. His name is clearly great. He's got a great name, right? We're still talking about him 4,000 years later. So that's been fulfilled and is still being fulfilled. I mean, how many other guys 4,000 years old have you read about recently? Not many. Chances are in 4,000 years, not many people will read about you. Well, maybe they will. Chances are they won't. They won't read about me. I know that. And what about a great nation? Well, what we're going to see here is that in Egypt, God keeps this promise of making them into a great nation. But let's look a little bit at how that plays out. We start with Abraham. I'm going to give you a little synopsis of his family tree to help you understand what's going on and how we get to Egypt. We start with Abraham, and Abraham's in love with this woman named Sarai, his wife, or Sarah, her name later becomes. And Abraham and Sarah were promised to have many descendants, to have a son. And in their old age, 25 years after that promise, when Abraham is 100 years old, they give birth to Isaac. And Isaac comes on the scene. Well, uh, Isaac... Uh, Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. God tests his faith. He doesn't actually sacrifice him, but you can read about that in Genesis 22. And Isaac marries uh, his wife, Rebecca. Now, Rebecca was the daughter of a guy named Bethuel, and she had a brother named Laban. Just file that away for a second, because we're gonna come back to that. But Isaac and Rebecca have two sons, Esau and Jacob. And they have... Uh, the second most dysfunctional family in the Old Testament <laughs> in a lot of ways, because the most dysfunctional will be of their son, Jacob's, in my opinion. And uh, Esau and Jacob, if you think your kids, hey, hey kids, how many of you have a brother or sister? Do you ever fight with them? You ever argue with them just a little bit? You, get it, you go at it? Well, check this out. Esau and Jacob were twins. Did you know that? They're born at the same time and they started fighting before they even got out of their mother's womb. In fact, when they were born, the text tells us that Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. They were in the middle of a battle royale when it was time to come out and God brought them out and they were wrestling all the way out and, and it never stopped. 
and they continued to fight and battle with one another. Well, uh, to the point that Esau eventually comes home one day and he's just starving. So I don't know how old he was. Maybe he's a teenager. Oh, I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. And uh, he, what he does is he, uh, he goes to Jacob, who was cooking some soup. Jacob, give me some of that soup. And Jacob's like, well, give me your birthright. You're the firstborn. Give me your birthright. And they'd always, he's like, well, I'm about to die. Who needs a birthright? That's, that's kind of what he says in Genesis. And so he sells him, sells his younger brother, Jacob, his birthright for some soup. Well, then, of course, Esau, after he gets his wits about him and he has some food in his stomach and he can think straight, gets really angry with himself and with his brother. And they continue to battle with one another. And then uh, I told you there was some dysfunction there. Just because you have fighting with your siblings, that doesn't mean dysfunction. That's just normal. But uh, that battle ensued and they drew their parents into it to the point that uh, when Isaac was old and his eyes were failing, the text tells us, Esau went off. He he told his son Esau to go uh, get some things to prepare for him a meal that he loved. So Esau goes off to hunt and to to find what he needs to make this meal. And Rebecca, his wife overhears that. And so does Jacob. And she calls Jacob and says, Jacob, listen, we're going to deceive your dad. Healthy relationship. Um, And so she tells him what she's going to do. I'm going to cook the meal. You're going to go into him and then he's going to bless you because he's about to die. Then you'll get his blessing. She helps him deceive his dad. And so that's what happens. And he goes in and the text tells us that Esau was a very hairy man. So he puts goat skins on his arms in case his father reaches out, you know, to feel him, to make sure there's actually hair on his arms because he had smooth skin, it said Jacob did. Well, Jacob continues deceiving. In fact, his name means deceiver. Well, let's keep going. Jacob falls in love with this girl named Rachel. He runs into her while they're both feeding their flocks. She's a shepherdess and he sees her and the, the, as close as it can say, the Bible basically says it was like love at first sight. I love that woman. And, and then, so he gets to know her. He finds out her husband or her father, excuse me, is Laban. And so Jacob goes to Laman, Laban, and asks him for his daughter's, daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban says, great, I'd love to give her to you. That'd be fantastic. You're one of our kinsmen. You just need to work for me for seven years. So Jacob goes to work for Laban for seven years. Well, seven years is up. Jacob goes, hey, Laban, how about that daughter that you promised? He goes, oh, no problem. Yeah, here we go. When those days you'd have a big celebration. So they prepared for the wedding and it was a week long celebration. And uh, Jacob goes in to his wife, who he thinks is Rachel, but Laban had deceived him and actually gave him Leah, her older sister. And it says that in the morning, Jacob realized it was Leah and he was furious. And he goes back to Laban, what is this? What have you done to me? And he says, well, I can't marry off my younger daughter before I marry my older daughter. What do you expect, Jacob? Well, yeah, but I wanted Rachel. Well, work another seven years and you can have Rachel. So he works another seven years to get Rachel. And eventually he receives Rachel's hand in marriage. Well, um, Rachel was his love. That's who he loved. 
And curiously, the way God works sometimes is he allows things to happen to shape us and to bring glory to him that are often painful for us. Would you agree? And, and Rachel experienced that. She was barren. She couldn't conceive. Yet her older sister, Leah, had four sons very quickly. And then you read the text and you read and it says that Rachel said, God has judged me. He's closed my womb. So she had a maidservant named Bilhah and she gave her maidservant Bilhah to her husband, Jacob. And he went into her and she conceived and gave birth to two sons, to Dan. And uh, he was named Dan because Dan in Hebrew sounds like judged. Rachel said, I've been judged. And then she said, and I've wrestled with God. And then she gave birth to Naphtali, which sounds like the word for wrestling in Hebrew. Well, during this time, Leah becomes barren as well. And so Leah follows her younger sister's lead and gives Jacob her maidservant, Zilpah. And, and Zilpah gives birth to two sons, Gad and Asher. And Rachel rejoices. Their, their names both refer to rejoicing in God's blessing. But Rachel still has no children. In fact, after that, Leah ends up having uh, two more sons and a boy before Rachel would have any children. Wouldn't that be heartbreaking to be Rachel? Uh, so you see all these sons and, and one daughter. Now, now Jacob's life, uh, he grew up in a family where his mom was deceiving his dad. He uh, gets betrayed basically by his father-in-law who uh, gives him, who deceives him, gives him the wrong daughter that he wanted to marry. As you go through, his life is filled with all kinds of hardship and affliction. And uh, in fact, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was abused and taken advantage of by other men. So he had to suffer that as a dad. His love of his life, Rachel, couldn't have any children so he suffered that as a husband and as a dad. He had his father-in-law Laban chase him and his, uh, his other sons to kill him. He suffered that. His brother Esau was at odds with him, wanted to kill him. He suffered that. Just wherever he turned, life was hard for Jacob. Well, eventually God hears their cries for help and uh, Rachel conceives. And she gives birth to a son, Joseph. Now, Jacob, because Rachel was the one that he really loved, which son do you suppose he treasured above all the others? Joseph. Now, you might say, boy, that's, that's not really right, you know, to favor one of your kids over the other. But again, all of Jacob's experiences in life, they don't excuse his behavior, but they do explain it, don't they? Just like all uh, the things that have maybe happened in the afflictions of your life, they don't excuse your behavior, but they can explain it and help you make sense maybe of decisions you've made or where you're at in life. Well, Joseph is born and uh, Joseph is favored by his father, Jacob. Eventually, uh, he and Rachel have another son, Benjamin. And again, Jacob suffers because uh, after giving birth to Benjamin, because of the, the struggle of giving birth to him, she dies in childbirth, Rachel does. And now Jacob is left with his sons and especially his two beloved sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And 
he, he really dotes and gushes over Joseph to the point that you've read about Joseph having a multicolored, a special coat that all his brothers didn't have and he was favored by his father. Well, uh, here's what happens with Joseph because Jacob had really gushed over him and favored him. His brothers were all out tending the flock one day and Joseph is sent out by Jacob to check on them and to bring them some food and they see him, they see him coming. And Joseph previously had dreamt some dreams. Is that the right way to say it? Sure, I'll just take it, go with it. Sounded good. He dreamt some dreams, right? And uh, yeah, I don't know either. But anyway, he, he dreamt though that uh, he was gonna rule over his brothers, that his brothers were all gonna bow down to him. And foolishly, he told all of his older brothers this. But you can, under, you can expect how great that went over, right? And so they see him coming and they're, oh, there's that dreamer. And it happened a couple of times that he had dreamt this. There's that dreamer. We're gonna give him what for. And so they plot to kill him. The oldest Reuben, or, or excuse me, Judah is actually the one who plots to kill him. Reuben uh, wants to try to save him. He says, well, hey, how about this? Let's just dig a big hole like a well and throw him in the well and let him die on his own. Let's not kill him. We don't want his blood on our hands. And then uh, a little later, uh, without Reuben knowing, because Reuben thought, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna rescue him out. Well, they all sell Joseph to some slave traders from Egypt who were passing through. And Joseph takes, goes off to Egypt as a slave. And of course they go home, they tear up his coat that they all hated. They give it to their father and they say, hey, was this Joseph's coat? What happened to him? And again, now Jacob thinks he's lost a son. But Joseph really did nothing other than maybe being a little foolish and telling his brothers about his dreams, ends up in Egypt as a slave. But God shows favor to him. He raises up in Potiphar's house, but then Potiphar's wife uh, tries to seduce him. And Joseph, godly man that he was, fled from her. She grabbed his coat. She accused him of, of, of rape and he gets thrown into prison. And he stays in prison for a while until eventually uh, God miraculously works for him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Uh, Joseph is raised up all entirely by God's hand to be the second most powerful man in Egypt at that time, second only to Pharaoh. Because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream that there were going to be seven years of great harvests and then of plenty. And then there's gonna be seven years of famine and the whole world's gonna be coming to Egypt to get grain. And you're, if you prepare well, Egypt is gonna be in a good spot for this. So of course, uh, he listens to Joseph exactly as uh, God had predicted, that's what happened. And Joseph in his power then is, uh, has stored up all this grain and people from all over the world are coming then during the time of famine to get food. And guess who shows up at Joseph's doorstep to get food? Who, Van, who do you got? His brothers, right on. All the others, they show up. Everybody except Jacob would not send Benjamin, right? Because Benjamin is the other son of his beloved wife, Rachel, who's now passed. And he wasn't gonna lose another son. So I said, you guys all go, Benjamin, stay in here. Well, they show up and Joseph doesn't reveal who he is. He just looks like an Egyptian ruler. He says, uh, go back. Do you have another son? Go back and get him to bring him back or another brother, bring him back. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm glossing over many more parts of the story, but eventually they all come. Joseph reveals himself. 
They're afraid, as you can imagine, this is our brother Joseph, who decades ago we sold into slavery and plotted to kill. And now we're at his mercy. His dream came true (laughs) that he would rule over us. And Joseph could have just, he, he could have struck vengeance on his brothers, couldn't he? But do you know what he does? You know what he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 40? He says, you meant it for evil. He, went, he goes in to weep and he comes out. He goes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. All the affliction Jacob had gone through, all the affliction Joseph had gone through, it may have been meant for evil and there may even be evil in it, but God miraculously works these things for good. And in doing so, uh, Jacob and all his family, as we just read, about 70 of them total end up in Egypt. Because of, Pharaoh, of Joseph's influence with Pharaoh, uh, his family gets great blessing and great favor. And so 70 of them move to Egypt. It says Joseph is already there. And we've just read then about these 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph's brothers. Well, eventually these become the 12 tribes of Israel, just skipping ahead a bit. And uh, you're like, well, where's the tribe of Joseph? Well, Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's love, Rachel, right? So Joseph gets the firstborn's inheritance, which is a double inheritance. He has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and those two both get land in the promised land as separate tribes. So there's two tribes of Joseph in a sense, you could say. But anyway, all that story... I tell you to give you the backstory of all the suffering, all the affliction that had happened in this family. And now God's keeping his promise to Abraham. He's made his name great. Now he's making him into a great nation. And between uh, uh, the next few verses uh, covers basically 400 years of history. Let's keep going. And look at verse six. It says, then, so this is before all those 400 years. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all of that generation. In Genesis 50, it tells us Joseph died at age 110, suggesting he was probably the last of all his brothers and of that generation to die. He was the second youngest. And if you're 110, that's old, right? There's a good chance he was the last one to die of his generation, of his family. You know, it struck me as I was studying this this week that uh, verse six will be said of each person in this room someday. And then Josh died and all those of his generation. That'll be said of you and of me. Now, Joseph, we're still talking about because of his character, because of his serving the Lord. I wonder, uh, he left a legacy. What legacy will you leave when that's said of you? Will it be a legacy of faithfulness? Will it be a legacy of fruitfulness? Will it be a legacy of running away from the Lord? Of running away from his church? Will it be a legacy that extends spiritually to future generations in your family and in our church? Or will your legacy be, uh, they were never really involved in anything and just kind of grumpy. What will your legacy be? Let's keep going though. Verse seven, that's just bonus for today. Verse seven, we read this. 
but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Verse seven covers 400 years that they're in Egypt. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so now when we pick up the story in Exodus chapter one, verse eight, it's been 400 years since Joseph. The people have multiplied from 70 into a multitude. What has God done? He's kept his promise to Abraham to make his family into a great nation. God keeps all his promises. And we pick up the story then in verse eight with Israel being a great nation of people in enemy territory in a foreign land. And we're gonna see that they're afflicted and we're gonna see this over and over, but we're gonna introduce it a little bit this morning. And and here's what I would tell you that just like the Israelites, we live in enemy territory. Do you believe that? Do you know that? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in enemy territory. This, This ain't our home, right? It's not our home, friends. It's simply not. In fact, uh, the, the writer of Philippians tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, not here. But let's go back to Exodus. I skipped ahead, verse, chapter one, verse eight. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, why not? Because it's 400 years later. I don't know any, I don't remember anybody from 400 years ago either who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, this king of Egypt, he said, behold, the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. That should probably be translated and overcome the land or overcome us. It's like, they've become so many. Think about this. You've got a ruler who's incredibly powerful and the king of Egypt, his title was Pharaoh. And you have a displaced people, an entire nation of immigrants living nearby who have just multiplied. And now this this leader is becoming fearful of them and of their influence. And they're gonna overtake us and they're gonna wipe out our culture and all this sorts of thing. And, And so he stirs up fear even among all the people of Egypt. They were exiles. You know what an exile is? An exile is a person who lives away from their native country, either by choice or compulsion. You and I are exiles in this land. We're citizens of heaven. Peter, in fact, calls us exiles when he writes to us. But imagine you're one of the Israelites. You're one of this multitude of people where uh, originally there was blessing when you came because that Pharaoh knew Joseph. But now 400 years later, the, the, the political climate has shifted and you're on the outs. And people are fearful of you. They just reject you outright and uh, they afflict them then with burden. See, they're under a taskmaster in enemy territory. They're under a taskmaster who afflicts them. And you and I, we live in enemy territory in a land that is not our home. And there is a taskmaster who afflicts us. Let's look at the taskmaster first who afflicts the Israelites. Look at Exodus 1, verses 11 through 14. Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is just a title that means the king of Egypt. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pethom and Ramses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. See, the the plan was to oppress them because if we oppress them, make them slaves, they're not gonna have, it's gonna gonna be population control in a lot of ways, right? They're not gonna have time to go tend to their own flocks. So they're they're gonna have no energy after working hard and eventually they're gonna start dying out. But instead of them decreasing in number, what happens? They increase. The more they were oppressed, it should read, the more their number dwindled. But it's just the opposite. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This plan of Pharaoh was backfiring. It wasn't working. Well, why? Because God's keeping his promise to Abraham and God is ultimately in control, even in the midst of their suffering when it seems like he's absent. So what do they do? Well, they were, they were in dread of the people of Israel, this, this foreign people who were in their country. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Friends, they were under a taskmaster, taskmasters who afflicted them. There's parallels here with us. We're, we're, in, we're, we're a foreign people in a foreign land. We're citizens of heaven in a place that is not our home. And there is a taskmaster over us and his name is Satan. Did you know he's a taskmaster? And he has many taskmasters under him. In fact, here's what Jesus says about him. He calls him the thief. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I come... I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, uh, the, the taskmasters would load them up with heavy burdens. So they were living under affliction. You know, Satan does the same, right? Even if you're a follower of Jesus, his, he can't have your soul. So now he's going to do his best to afflict you, afflict you and discourage you maybe wrap you into some addiction or uh, some repetitive sin or whatever, or mindset or thought pattern or whatever it is. And he's going to continue to afflict you. Why? Well, it's the same motivation that Pharaoh had to break you, to cause you to be not effective, to cause distress and despair in your life. He's a taskmaster. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, who are burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is light. See, Satan is a terrible taskmaster. He, he promises the best by luring us into sin and he delivers the worst. He promises honor and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, he pays with pain. He promises profit, he pays with loss. He promises life, he pays with death. Thomas Brooks once said, temptations are certain to ring your doorbell, but it's your own fault if you ask them to stay for dinner. See, what we're describing here is affliction. And affliction can be great and affliction can be light. There's, there's, there's a whole scale on which affliction resides, right? It's, here's, here's the definition I'm gonna use. It's any problem or condition that produces suffering or pain. So that means afflictions can be things that I have no control over. The loss of a loved one, 
like, like Rachel in the Old Testament, not being able to conceive. It can just be strife in my family. It, it can be all kinds of things that are completely out of my control, losing my job, assuming that you didn't do something to get fired, right? Afflictions in, in all different manner. But then they can also be things that we've done, that, that we've chosen, like sin. like addictions that we fall into, that we choose. But an affliction is any problem or condition that produces pain and suffering. And you can see that that Satan's goal then, once there's affliction, whether it's something that's out of your control or something even that you've chosen for yourself, his goal then is to continue to ramp that up, make it heavier, make it into a bigger burden. Why? So that your eyes come off of Jesus and onto your affliction. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have something coming to mind when you think of something that maybe you're afflicted with. Maybe it's anxiety and you don't know, how did I, I don't know that I chose this. It's just, how do I get out of this? Maybe it's bitterness and bitterness is absolutely something you've chosen. But in any case, it's one of those things where if you don't turn your eyes to Jesus and you're afflicted. His eyes are to keep your, his goal is to keep your eyes from Jesus. Do you know what's really curious in everything we've read so far? Do you know whose name has yet to show up in the book of Exodus in the midst of all this affliction? Do you know God's name hasn't been mentioned yet in the book? His name hasn't come up. It has in my message, but it hasn't in the text. Many scholars point this out that it really serves to convey the sense of hopelessness that the Israelites must have felt. In the midst of their affliction, where was God? And things are clearly not gonna get better until he shows up. Have you ever had that experience in your life? Life keeps getting harder. Things seem to be getting worse and worse. And maybe it's out of your control. Maybe it's choices you've made. But in any case, where is God? Where is he? If he doesn't show up, it's never gonna get fixed. His name doesn't show up until chapter three, by the way, if you're curious. But they were under taskmasters, as are we, and they were afflicted. But here's the deal. Here's what we're gonna see. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That if our eyes are stayed on Jesus, even in the midst of the worst of the worst, here's here's what we see. See, there's a taskmaster who afflicts us, but Jesus sees us and he knows our affliction. In the midst of whatever the affliction is that you're living under or have lived under, or maybe you're entering into, keep your eyes on Jesus because guess what? He does see you. Even if it seems like he's nowhere to be found, even if his name hasn't been mentioned in this story yet, he, he sees you and he knows your affliction. Do you want proof? 
The next part of this, this passage, we're gonna come back to next week, but I wanna skip ahead to the end of this introductory narrative. At the end of chapter two, here's what it says. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died in verse 23, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. They cried out to God. Their cry for rescue came, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now he's mentioned here, but his personal name isn't mentioned until chapter three. Listen, whatever your affliction is, God sees it. And he knows it. Jesus sees you and he knows. That might be one of the most comforting verses in all of scripture, isn't it? He sees and he knows. And by the way, that's not all. And he rescues. And he rescues us. Peter tells us we can cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. And here, here we see he rescues us. See the story of, of what's going to happen. We're gonna stop in verse 14 today. And at the end of chapter, chapter two, where God sees and knows. But what we're gonna see in the coming weeks is that Jesus saw, Jesus knew, and he rescued his people. And you need to know, he sees your affliction. He knows it, however big or small it might be. And he offers redemption to you, to deliver you from it, to, to pay the penalty for you if you would trust him, to ransom you and to renew you, to free you from it and make you new. Isn't that good news? Friends, that's the gospel and it's all about Jesus. In fact, here's what, here's what Jesus himself said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And because, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to those who are captive then recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, or you could uh, say afflicted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rescues. In Colossians, Paul says, he, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness from the taskmaster, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Galatians, Paul writes, he says, he who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He's talking about Jesus, glory to him according to the will of God, our father. Friends, what we're gonna see as we move through the story of Exodus is that uh, like the Israelites, we live in enemy territory. And like the Israelites had a taskmaster and taskmasters that afflicted them, there's a taskmaster out to afflict your soul. But Jesus sees and Jesus knows and Jesus rescues. Would you trust him? Leave with that hope today. If you've never trusted Jesus, it's very simple. 
It's repenting of your sin, recognizing I'm a sinner. I need someone to save me, to rescue me. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, that if you would simply believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Now that full redemption may not come until he comes back to make everything perfect, but that means our present afflictions are so worth it in light of what's coming. Amen? Trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace. And Jesus, thank you for your rescue. Jesus, it's easy um, to just say the truth and uh, recite it, to say that you see and that you know. But often in our experience, Lord, it, it feels like anything but. And at times you feel distant and we feel very much uh, like, the, like the Israelites as, as slaves, as ones who are afflicted and oppressed and your name is nowhere yet in the story. But the good news is Jesus that you see and you know. So even when we can't put our hands on it tangibly, help us to trust the truth and to trust your voice and trust what we know to be true. Jesus, I pray again for those who've never trusted you that even today they might. And for all of us that you might continue to make us more like Jesus, freeing us from our afflictions, those we've chosen and those that we haven't and making us more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. As we sing and close together, um, maybe this is a song that you would sing by faith. As some of the afflictions in your own life maybe have come to the surface, know your identity is in Christ. Christ.